What would give you peace? What would give you peace? I don't mean merely what would it take to make you outwardly prosperous, but, but what would it take for you to be inwardly content and secure? Uh, you, you may hope to obtain peace if that, that dating relationship that you're pursuing were to end in marriage. Or maybe if the, the letter that arrives in the mail says that we are, we're pleased to offer you admission to our university. Or if the job interview that you just had leads to a promotion. Or if that long simmering conflict in the family is resolved. Or if those test results that you've been waiting on from the doctor's office come back clear. Uh, any of those blessings may bring a measure of happiness. And, and we can certainly and we should praise the Lord uh, when those outward marks of prosperity meet us. It's understandable to feel better about how things are going in your life uh, when those things happen as opposed to the opposite happening. But can these things really give you peace. Uh, fill in the blank for whatever earthly good you most long for. If I didn't capture it in those 30 seconds of things I just rattled off, fill in the blank for what you would most long for in this life. Whatever plan you most want to see succeed. Is it possible that that you could grab hold of whatever it is that you're chasing after, but find yourself still lonely and still dissatisfied and still frustrated and still fearful. I think if we look around at our own lives and we talk to enough people that we read enough headlines, even in the news, we'll understand. We can't just find peace by obtaining some outward thing. So what would give you peace? That's a question I think that we want to have in our minds as we come to this uh, portion of Scripture that Dave read for us. It says there in verse 33, the last verse that he read, Jesus said, I have said these things to you. And when he says these things, he's not referring only to the words in that passage that we just heard read aloud but he's really referring back to the whole uh, discourse, the whole speech he's been giving to his disciples that would go back, I would say, to chapter 13, verse 31, when, when Judas Iscariot left the room and Jesus began speaking very intimately to his remaining disciples of what was to come. He was preparing them for his imminent departure from them. And throughout this discourse, we know that Jesus has been aiming to alleviate their fears and to calm their hearts. So we see it in the beginning of chapter 14. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And in chapter 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave you with, my peace I give to you. Here in verse 33 of chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
That's what Jesus is pursuing for his disciples in that last night before his crucifixion. His disciples then in the first century, and it is still true for all of us who are aiming to follow Jesus during this time of his physical absence from us. He desires that we would have peace. And in this passage in particular, I see two pillars that I believe are meant to uphold and support our peace in this world. Two pillars supporting our peace. That's what we want to talk about this morning. Before we, before we talk about them, though, I just want to very briefly draw your attention to one observation here that sort of is overarching the whole thing that I think is worth highlighting, and that is this. It's going to be so obvious, you're going to, be, it's, you're going to think this is like a duh thing, but sometimes it's good for us to just linger for a couple of minutes on the, the duh things. Jesus says things in order that his people would have peace. He speaks to you. He says things to you so that you might have peace. Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So uh, have, have you heard the saying before, I trust that a lot of you have, that ignorance is bliss. Have you heard that? Ignorance, boy, you're very, uh, ignorance is bliss. In the real world, ignorance is not bliss because ignorance cannot comfort you or help you make sense of the profound afflictions that you will meet in this life. Jesus tells us it is not ignorance that brings bliss. Actually, it is the knowledge of God that is revealed in the words of God that bring bliss, that bring comfort, that bring peace to his people because God in the scriptures has spoken to his people. He has revealed himself and his holy purposes for the world and for our lives in the pages of scripture. He does this so that in him we might have peace. So uh, ignorant Christians... Bible-less Christians should not expect to be peaceful, contented Christians. The one who has but little of God's word dwelling in his or her heart will have little of that peace which surpasses understanding. And the Lord does not want that. So he says things to you in order that you may have peace. That's why we give ourselves to reading the Bible personally. That's why we give ourselves, when we gather, to filling you up with a lot of God's Word. There have been a lot of portions of Scripture that have been read or sung or referred to in prayer, and there will be many portions of Scripture that I will seek to bring to your attention this morning, because that commitment to the Scriptures is a commitment to your peace. So if you struggle to read the Bible, if you struggle to desire the Bible, you hear little pieces like this and you say, I know, I know I should be reading the Bible more, but I just, I struggle to want to do that. Ask yourself this question, do you want peace? Because if you want peace, you want God's word because God's word is given to you that you might have peace. I'm taking that from Jesus saying, I have spoken these things, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have 
peace. Now, there's a couple things in particular that he says here to us for our peace. Two pillars, I call them. The first pillar is this. The Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. At the beginning of this passage, uh, Jesus acknowledges that he's been speaking to his disciples somewhat cryptically, right? He says, I'm speaking to you in figures of speech. The hour's coming, I'm going to speak to you plainly about the Father. Uh, the, the hour that he's referring to when he would speak plainly to his disciples was, we, we talked about this last Sunday a little bit, was the time of his resurrection. After his resurrection, he would spend a period of 40 days with his disciples and he would open their minds. You can read about this in Luke chapter 24. He would open their minds to understand the scriptures and how all of them had been pointing to Jesus. They had borne witness to Jesus. And so he would illuminate, he would speak plainly to them and reveal God's purposes to them in a way that they just couldn't comprehend before Jesus' death and resurrection. And then once Jesus ascended to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit who would give them increased illumination. So when, when Jesus would rise from the dead... That event itself would bring a new clarity to the disciples. It would, it would shine a light backwards upon their whole experience. And everything that they had heard from him that they didn't understand, that they couldn't make sense of, that resurrection would explain. It would shine light into all that was confusing and dark in their understanding and their experience. That, that actually is a point. I had another point. And I do try to exercise some self-control about how long I'm standing up here in front of you. So I actually had another point, another pillar of peace is that clarity will come. And it was just based on this point here. Do, do not, so I'll just give you a little, little encouragement from it, but I'm not going to spend eight or ten minutes on it like I was going to. Don't let confusion in the present about what God is doing in your life or what he is not doing in your life. Do not let present confusion uh, pressure you to let go of the promise of the risen Christ that he will bring you everlasting joy and rest. The resurrection was the dawning of clarity, and that clarity will come in the last day. If you say, why, God, why, I don't understand why you would be doing this. I don't understand how this could be good. I don't understand why you've not worked this way. It seems, I don't think I'm being selfish. I don't think I'm asking for my own glory, but you've not done this or that. Why is it so? Listen to Jesus say, clarity will come. Clarity will come. Okay, now that was my extra point there for just for free for one minute. But here, he, he continues on. He says, clarity is going to come in that hour, that resurrection morning. In verse 26, he says, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Again, in that day, being the day that Jesus rose victoriously from the grave, as the triumphant mediator between God and man, from that time, Jesus' disciples would bring their prayers to the Father in Jesus' name. That's what he says there. Kids. Have you noticed that when we pray, whether it's here on Sunday mornings or maybe when you pray in your house, we almost always we end those prayers with, in Jesus' name. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know why? See, the Ty when, the Tyrell, when the Tyrell boys aren't here, I don't get much feedback from the kids, you know. But uh, 
Do you know why we pray in Jesus' name? It's not just like some words that we just put onto the end of the prayer because it's just like a religious thing to do. We, we, we pray in Jesus' name because apart from Jesus and what he's done for us to cleanse us from our sins, we really can't get to God. He's, he's not going to hear our prayers because we're evil sinners. But Jesus has cleansed us. He has made, the fancy word would be kids, atonement. He has made atonement for our sin. He's made peace between us and God. So now we come to him. And so we come to him through Christ, through Jesus and what he's done for us. And we remember that when we say we're coming in Jesus' name. Uh, adults, you might not want to forget that either. When we Don't just say in Jesus' name mindlessly. I know it's, we can just become somewhat mindless in that, but remember when you're praying and when you end that prayer saying, in Jesus' name, we're thinking of what he's done, that we might have access to this victorious God as our loving Father. And Jesus wants to make sure here in this passage, he wants to make sure that his disciples know that even though they come to the Father and they have access to the Father through Jesus, it's not as though the Father himself is stingy and that he needs to like have his arm twisted by the loving Son in order to maybe possibly think about blessing you or doing good to you. No, Jesus wants the disciples to know your Father himself loves you. It's the Father himself who so loved the world. If I could quote perhaps the most famous Bible verse in the world. It's the Father himself who so loved the world that he gave his only son. Don't have in your minds this concept that the loving son, God just, he had no heart to really save us, but he's, now he's got to do it because Jesus so loved us. No, the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's God the Father who King David was praising in Psalm 103, when he said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's God the Father who takes great delight in his repentant, believing people. The, the scriptures say he rejoices over his people with loud singing. Right? You know that verse in Zephani Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God. This is speaking of God the Father. He's in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you by his love. He will rejoice. He will exult over you with loud singing. Even in the filth and the misery of the sins of his people, it was the Father's burning, affectionate, longing love that moved him to rescue his wayward people time and time and time again. And I'm talking about even before he sent his beloved son into the world. I've been reading the book of Jeremiah. I know some of you are doing that as well these days, reading through the book of Jeremiah. And it is a, there's this amazing statement. In, I mean, there's lots of amazing statements. But in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, the Lord says this to his people. His, is Ephraim, Ephraim is another reference to Israel. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? 
for as often as I speak against him. And he'd been speaking against them for several chapters, talking about their sin, calling it whoredom. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. My people have forsaken me, he said. You are as unable to remove your evil as a leopard is unable to remove its spots. He had been speaking against them for some 29 chapters or so. But he says, as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. For 29 chapters of Jeremiah, he indicted this nation for its abounding sinfulness. But here in chapter 31, he pledges he will not just throw them away as they deserve. They are too dear to his heart, the Father. They're too dear to him. His when it says, my heart yearns for him, the, the, the Hebrew word literally means his, it's his, his bowels or his guts. Does, God doesn't have guts literally. It's using a figure of speech that we can understand. His, there's a churning, longing, aching affection that he has. And that affection moves him to, to, to declare, as he does in the latter part of chapter 31, a new covenant with his people. A covenant that will not be like the old one that the people of Israel broke, but an everlasting covenant that he would always do them good, that he would cleanse them from their sins, and that he would put his own spirit in their hearts, that they might walk in his way, and that they might live in the affection of his love forever. And in, in the fullness of time, it was the Father himself who so loved the world. Not just ethnic Jews, but the whole world, sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. He would send forth his own dearly loved son to be the emissary of his yearning and churning affection for sinners. Jesus describes his whole mission there right in our passage in verse 28. Look, look again at verse 28. Jesus says, I came from the Father... And have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's the whole mission of Jesus in a nutshell right there. He came from the Father. He came into the world. The world, I mean, it says this amazing statement at the beginning of John's gospel. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He was despised and he was rejected by his own people. But in this, God was showing his love for sinners. Romans 5, 8, God shows, God the Father shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Christian brother and sister, listen, let the, let the words of a dear old saint move you afresh with the wonders of his love for you. I'm reading a book now by an author named Thomas Brooks. It was written in 1652. And he talks about what God has done for us in sending his own son. That, that Christ, so I'm just going to give you a long quote right now. That Christ should come from the eternal bosom of his father to a region of sorrow and death. That God should be manifested in the flesh. The creator made a creature. That he who was clothed with glory should be wrapped with rags of flesh. That he who filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger. 
that the God of the law should be himself subject to the law. That he who binds the devils in chains should be tempted. That he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst. That the God of strength should be weary. The judge of all flesh condemned. The God of life put to death. That he who is one with his father should cry out of misery, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he who had the keys of hell and death at his belt should lie imprisoned in the tomb of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body. That the head before which the angels do cast down their crowns should be crowned with thorns, and those eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death, those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels to hear the blasphemies of the multitude, that face which was fairer than the sons of men to be spit on by those beastly, wretched soldiers, that mouth and tongue which spoke as never man spoke, accused of blasphemy. Those hands which freely swayed the scepter of heaven, nailed to the cross. Those feet burnished as bronze, nailed to the cross for man's sins. Each sense pained with a spear and nails. His smell with stinking odor being crucified on Golgotha, the place of skulls. His taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches and sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him, his soul comfortless and forsaken. All this the son was willing to endure, not for the strong, not for the wise, not for the well put together, but for the self-reliant, for the overconfident, for the boastful, for the fickle, and for the immature. Do you see what Jesus says there? In verses 29 to 32, the disciples saying, oh, we've got it. Now we understand. Even though he just said, I'm speaking in figures. I'm going to, a day is coming. I'm going to speak to you clearly. They say, oh, now you're speaking clearly. He was not yet speaking clearly. They, oh, we got it now. We understand now. And Jesus says, y'all are, you, you understand now? You're coming in just a little while. You're coming. You're going to all scatter away from me. You're all going to leave me. In my darkest hour, you're going to leave me. And yet it's to them. He knows that. He knows that's coming. He knows they're all about to abandon him in his darkest hour. And he says to them, the Father himself loves you. All that, all that the Son endured that I just tried to convey to you, it was the Son who endured it, but it was the Father who gave up his own Son to it. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, child of God, behold the wonders of his love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This is the foundation of that peace which Jesus promises to give. The Father himself loves you, and none of your sins can dampen or cool the depths of his affectionate love for you. He does not love you because you deserve to be loved. He loves you because he is love. 
I didn't write this one down, but let me just turn to it because it came to mind. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent Jesus to bear the wrath that we so richly deserved, that we might be children of God. As if you're, if you're here with us today and you're, you're visiting, maybe you're not sure what you believe. Maybe you have not put your faith in Christ. Are there many reasons why people don't put their faith in Christ? But you know one of them that is surprising to me, but I do bump into it from time to time, is that people just think sometimes, I'm just too messed up. You don't understand. God couldn't love me. I'm too messed up. I'm too far gone. I'm too hopeless. I don't understand enough. I've got too many failures in my past. And if you're here this morning and you happen to be thinking that, I want you to see that Jesus is speaking these words to people that he knows are about to abandon him. The whole message of Christianity is we're so messed up, we are so flawed, we have so rebelled against God, all of us, that it took Jesus coming into the world to die on a wretched cross to bear the punishment of God that was due to all of us for our sins. But God so loved the world that he gave him up to that. And so if you are here this morning thinking, I'm not good enough, look at Jesus speaking to these disciples right on the brink of running away from him and saying, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from the Father. Oh, we don't have to clean ourselves up and get right before we come to him. No, we come to him and in his grace, he receives us. So if you're here this morning holding out on coming to him because you think you need to fix yourself, oh, please don't leave this auditorium without speaking to someone about who God really is, what Jesus really has done for the worst of sinners. We, we sang it, was it last Sunday, I think? He welcomes the weakest and the vilest and the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Oh, if you've not come to Jesus, I would urge you to come to Jesus today. Talk to me, talk to someone who's, who's uh, brought you here, who's around you, that you would know more of this love. A Christian, brothers and sisters, I know that some of your disruption of peace in this life will be because of your own sin. It will be because of your own... See, when we think of in the world you will have tribulation, you may be thinking about, you probably are first thinking about stuff that's done to you. Whether that's illness that arises that you can't control, or a tree that falls that causes disruption, or what somebody does to you, and that is a way that tribulation comes. Jesus does tell us that, the apostles tell us that, there's going to be persecution that comes, but sometimes what disrupts our peace is our own immaturity, our own weakness, if I dare might say it, our own stupidity. And what we need to know in those times is that there's no, there's no wire that you could trip that could shut off his love for you. He sees you down to the depths. He knows you in the innermost recesses of your heart and his love surges towards you because of what he sees. Surges so much that his son transcended the distance from heaven to earth to come and rescue hell-deserving sinners from his wrath. Do you need that comfort today? 
that we have in a loving Father, a tenacious, persevering love that will not let us go for all who have come to love his Son. And it is a sure love. It is a certain love. It is an unconquerable love because Jesus has overcome the world. Pillar for your peace, number two. The Father himself loves you, and Jesus has overcome the world. Verse 33, you know this verse, you love this verse. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then listen, listen to these words again, being mindful that these are the last words of his last discourse. With, I know he will speak again from the cross and we will hear him praying to the Father in chapter 17. Lord willing, we'll come to that next week. But this is his time, this is his last time with his disciples, and this is the last thing he says to his disciples, the last time he is addressing them. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's, that's the Christian's life in a single verse. We, we Christians live essentially in two realms. We live in two spheres. We live in the world. And so here in the world, we know tribulation. Uh, when Jesus walked the earth and when he taught, he was, not, uh, he was not a bouncy, you know, peppy, positive thinking, self-help guru. Just thinking, you know, you just need to believe for better things, you know. He, he was very plain, he was very candid in saying life is hard. The days of darkness would be many. He said to his disciples, the gate is narrow and the way is, say it if you know, the gate is narrow and the way is, well that was pretty weak, frankly, I think more of you know this. The gate is narrow and the way is hard. You don't say it with, the gate, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. He knew that. He prepared us for that. And so when we find ourselves experiencing weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, as Paul chronicled in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we should be mindful something strange is not happening to us. He told us that it would happen. Like we can expect some heat and humidity in the New Jersey summer. We can expect afflictions in this life. Sometimes we get a reprieve from the heat and the humidity, right? We've had some really nice days this week. It's unseasonably cool right now, but we know if we're in South Jersey and it's August, it's just a matter of time. We're going to have some heat and humidity. He says, you're going to have tribulation in the world. Expect that. But as we saw last week, that sorrow is not the last word for the disciple of Christ. Sorrow will turn to joy. So for the saint, tribulation is not the last word. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And we can have that same confidence because even as we live in this world and we endure the trials of this world, the Christian lives simultaneously in another sphere, not only in the world, we live in that sphere, but we live in the in Christ sphere and Jesus has overcome the world. 
Jesus is speaking here, when he says, I have overcome the world, he is speaking of that victory which he accomplished on the cross and in his triumph over the grave, that triumph, that victory over Satan and sin and death and the world, right? That evil system in rebellion against God, he triumphed over them all by his own death and resurrection. And he could speak of it as a certainty. He says, I have overcome the world. Even though he was still hours away from the crucifixion and a few days away from the triumphant resurrection, he could speak of it as if it had happened. I have overcome the world because it was that sure in his purposes. Even as those soldiers were marching at that very moment, probably marching to take him, to arrest him, to lead him towards that agonizing suffering, Jesus was overcoming the world because he knew that by his laying down his life, he was going to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross, rising victorious over the grave, and he would overcome the world. By this triumph... Jesus' disciples can enjoy peace even amidst the world's tribulations because the world in which we live is a vanquished enemy. It has already happened. It happened when he came out of the grave on the third day. Persecution and troubles and sins that still cling so closely and death which threatens to steal every pleasure, Jesus has overcome them all. In the world we will have heartache. But in Christ, we triumph over every earthly trouble. So take heart, Christian brother and sister. If it looks around you, if you turn on the news, if you walk downtown, and it seems as though evil is getting the upper hand, it just seems like evil is just being more and more celebrated and is becoming more and more triumphant around you, those are just the birth pains. Jesus has overcome the world. Now, what difference is that actually supposed to make in your life? Like now, today, this week, Jesus has overcome the world. I want you to consider two implications. One implication is that when the believer in Christ reckons that Christ has overcome the world by his death and resurrection, the believer in Christ has a new confidence and freedom to actually overcome the world by walking in joyful obedience to his commandments. I would not have thought to make this as an implication had I not been doing some word searching of the word overcome in the New Testament. When we believe Jesus has overcome the world, we believe that we have power in Christ to walk in joyful obedience to his commands. Listen to the way John himself applied these words in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is the love of God, he says. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For, so he's about to give an explanation. He's about to give a reason why the love of God moves us to keep his commandments. And not in a burdensome way, but in a joyful way. How is that possible? How can that be? For everyone who has been born of God 
overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And as if you still didn't get it, he's going to tell you again, who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I want you to listen to me because I'm going to quote some Bible because I think some of you don't really believe this. And I just want to give you lots of Bible to help you try to believe it because faith comes from hearing the word. In the act of believing in Christ, we have entered into his victory over sin and death and the devil. And so we overcome because he who is in us, that is the resurrected and conquering and victorious Christ, he is in us by his spirit. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In Christ, that means you do not need to yield to the world's temptations, whether they be moral or intellectual or social. The world is that realm of, of immorality and error and idolatry and persecution. But those who are born of God overcome the world with all of its lies and seductions and its barriers to obedience. And so with the Apostle John, we can say to ourselves and we can say to one another, you are strong, believer in Christ, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Have you ever said that to yourself? Have you ever said that to another Christian who's struggling with sin? Listen, it is a great comfort and refuge when we are struggling with sin to be able to say, praise the Lord that God showed his love for us in that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Praise the Lord. I would not deprive you of the glory of that truth. But here's something else you can put in the toolkit. We're called to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And here's something that you can say, because John himself said it to believers in the first century. You are strong Christians, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And if you would doubt him, if you would let Paul come in and attest with our brother John, sin, Paul says, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. He says, we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so if Christ is in you, if Christ has overcome the world, and if you are in Christ who has overcome the world, then you've been raised with Christ. And even now, spiritually speaking, you have been seated with him in heavenly places. So he can say to you, put to death. He does say this to you in Colossians chapter 3, because you're raised with him, because you're seated with him in glory, because you're hidden with him in, in Christ. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. You can put them all away, believers, along with anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, the apostle would say to you, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we still war. Galatians 5, the spirit wars against the flesh. We got that war going on. But in the midst of that war, please do not say, I just can't overcome this sin in my life. I just can't. That's just a lie from the pit of hell. Because I'll just say it to you again. John says, application for Jesus has overcome the world. You in Christ are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one.
Reckon it to be so, Christian brother or sister. Encourage one another with these things. We have a new identity, and the new identity of a believer is not, I just can't get past this. I just can't overcome. The new identity of a believer is our old self has been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or let's bring in Brother Peter once for just a moment. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not a few things, not some things. His divine power has granted to you all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. He breaks the power of canceled sin, brothers and sisters, because he's overcome the world. You need not live in defeat against sin this week because Jesus has overcome the world. I wonder if you believe it. I just give you, I'll give you more scripture after the service if you want because I skipped over things because I see the time. Remember how I cut that first point? I was very kind to you. There's another implication. He, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. He sets us free from the power of sin because he's overcome the world. He sets us free. Also, he has overcome suffering for us. And I can do this briefly, but I can't say, I was reminded again this morning by a wise daughter of mine, you can never say that too much, Dad, so I will say it again. Because Jesus has overcome the world, he has overcome all of your sufferings for you. And I'll just read you the passage very briefly. It's Romans 8. Can never say Romans 8 too often. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says this, listen. No, he says, in all these things. So not you're going to be, you're going to escape all those things, but in all these things. In the world you will have tribulation. In all these things though, he says, we are more than conquerors. That's a great word. More than conquerors. It's a verb. It's all one word. It's a verb. You know how we put, you know, I've picked this up. I don't know who started this. It's a kind of a newer thing. I, I don't think 15 years ago I would talk like this, but we talk about I'm super encouraged. You ever use the word super at the beginning of something? That was super helpful or super encouraging. Don't people talk like that these days? I picked that up somewhere. That was, he says, what, he's, what it's literally saying is we're super conquering. In all these things, in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in sword. We're super conquering. That's the word. Overwhelmingly conquering because of him who loved us. And so what that means is cancer does not have the last word. Multiple sclerosis does not have the last word. Parkinson's disease does not have the last word. Crohn's disease does not have the last word. Any disease does not have the last word. Any injustice will not have the last word. Any ongoing struggle with temptation will not have the last word. Any legitimate unfulfilled desire will not have the last word. In Christ, through him who loved us, we are overwhelmingly conquerors in Christ because he's overcome the world. So you will have tribulation. The Lord will not spare you from the tribulation, but he longs for your peace in the midst of that tribulation. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, 
and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. As we could say that, we could sing that with loud joy this morning because the Father himself loves you and because Jesus has overcome the world. Love you, brothers and sisters. I forgot to say that last week. My apologies. But I love you last week, and I love you this week as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are slow of heart to believe. We thank you that you bear with us in our weakness, in our immaturity. The Father himself, you love us. Nothing can separate us from your love. We, we, we long to experience more of that super conquering through him who loves us. It will not protect us from every earthly adversity. We have been promised that we will know trials and tribulations. But Father, would you help us in the midst of those tribulations to remember, to reckon it to be so, that Jesus has overcome the world, and that in Christ we too have overcome the world, that we need not yield to temptation, that we not need to yield to the devil's lies, that we will withstand sufferings, and that even as Lazarus knew a greater glory for having suffered the pains of death and then bursting forth from the grave, we will know a greater glory. We will overwhelmingly conquer even through the hardships of this life when that resurrection morning arrives. Make us strong, make us humble, make us dependent upon Jesus and ever looking to him. We pray for this all in his glorious name. Amen.